It didn't take long into the global pandemic before Chinese researchers posted the genetic sequence of the virus online. And it wasn't long after that, about two days, before two researchers at the National Institutes of Health designed the basic outlines of COVID vaccines. For their work, doctors Kizmikia Corbett and Barney Graham are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Dr. Graham joins me now. Dr. Graham, good to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. January of 2020, that's not that deep into the whole problem. The Chinese did post the DNA, I guess, of the virus. What did you do next? What does a vaccine researcher do with DNA information? Tell us the process. This wasn't the first coronavirus that came through. Uh, We have four that circulate every winter. And then we had a big SARS outbreak in 2002. We had a big MERS outbreak in 2012. And so since then, we've been working on coronavirus vaccines. And we've solved the structures, the atomic level detail of their surface proteins. And we've learned how to design vaccines from those proteins. We've learned how to deliver it by RNA. And we had a project that we called a prototype pathogen approach to pandemic preparedness that was already in process. So we had evidence that we could deliver a mRNA expressing a spike protein Uh, that was designed in a particular way, and we could protect animals from uh, lethal MERS coronavirus challenge. And that was the project, getting ready for a new virus. And so when that sequence came out, we had already decided ahead of time that we could modify that without any additional experimentation and just go right into manufacturing. And so we ran the drill, what we call the drill. In other words, you had almost 10 years of dress rehearsal for this big show. We were working toward this. We didn't really know there would be a show. We didn't want there to be a show, but we uh, were working toward a, a quicker solution to vaccine pandemic response. Well, do you think that what you learned in dealing with those earlier COVID types of variations and in creating the vaccines for those, does that learning translate to, say, non-COVID viri that might come along? Is there anything in the techniques that can translate out of the COVID domain, let's say? Yeah, there's 26 viral families that can infect humans or that are known to infect humans. And we've especially been working on two of them, paramyxoviruses and coronaviruses. We've worked on others as well, but uh, those two, we've been working toward pandemic preparedness. And the coronaviruses seem to be, that family of viruses seems to be particularly susceptible to a single vaccine antigen design. So we knew that we had already translated this into 12 different other coronaviruses, and we knew that it would likely work. We know how to do the paramyxovirus uh, process, but it's probably would be something that it would take two or three months of experimentation before we settled on a final design. Some of the other viral families, it might take two to three years before we could get to a final design. So in some ways, we were very lucky it was a coronavirus that allowed us to respond quickly. And we're lucky that it happened this time instead of 20 years ago. If the first SARS had spread like this one has, we would have been in even worse shape. Because in the history of vaccine-based problems, sometimes it takes 
a generation or two to come up with a vaccine. I'm thinking of polio, for example. Right. That was 50 right. years. Right. The respiratory syncytial virus, which I've spent most of my career working towards, a lot of the work on RSV was the basis for what we did for coronavirus. And those, uh, the findings that really mattered for the vaccine happened in 2013, 12 and 13. And that vaccine development program is going well, and it's in late stage testing, but it's not likely to be licensed or we won't have the information to be licensed until 2024 or so. So that's more on a traditional path where you go from breakthrough to a vaccine in 10 or 12 years. We're speaking with Dr. Barney Graham. He's deputy director, or until recent retirement, of the Vaccine Research Center at the National Institutes of Health, and along with fellow researcher Dr. Kizmiki Corbett, they're finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. And how important was it that the Chinese published the DNA sequence of the COVID-19 virus? And what form does that take? Do they send you a slide, drawing, a set of computer printouts? Right. What, how does it, what does it look like? Well, right. The, these coronaviruses have an RNA genome. So it was an RNA sequence, and that has is composed of four different nucleotides, an ACTG type of uh, set of nucleotides. Those create a three-letter code to tell cells what protein, how to make a protein. And so what we got out of the, this, these viruses have about a 30,000 nucleotide long genome. So we got a sequence of ATC, U's or G's. And it was a long set of letters that we got. And you can translate those into what the protein would be. You can align those protein sequences or the amino acid sequences with other coronaviruses that we've worked on before. And we can find the places that we need to make modifications and just pull out the spike protein. The spike protein is about 10% of that. And so we can find the spike protein code within that sequence, and we can align it with other coronavirus spikes we've worked on. And then we can use that information to say, this is the protein we want to make. And from the discovery of the protein you want to make to actually making the protein. That, of course, is something the drug companies did. What did that require? What you do then is you take that sequence, you make a DNA that can encode for the RNA that makes the protein. And, and so we can synthesize DNA. And, and so we synthesize DNA in this correct sequence so that we can make protein to solve structures, to make assays. Uh, the, a sequence that uh, Moderna, the, who we worked with directly, uh, used to, to make the vaccine. And, and so uh, we made protein for a lot of different types of reasons. And in the case of the RNA vaccines, the body actually makes the protein. So the way this works is you, you put the code into the RNA. And as you deliver the RNA, it can go into a muscle cell or another cell, and those cells then become the factory. Instead of making the protein in a factory, which some companies are doing, in this case, the body is making the protein. And when the body sees that foreign spike protein, it makes an antibody response and T-cell responses, and that's what creates your immunity. And you've been chasing this kind of thing for a long career. Do you ever look at these viruses, think of them as enemies that you really want to stamp out? I guess I see them as puzzles mostly, but the virus disease itself is uh, our enemy. I mean, that's what all of us should be standing against the, the viruses, you know, not 
having controversy about, you know, other other things. We all need to kind of align ourselves against the virus, not not against each other. The ability to solve this problem to some extent in, in a weekend, according to the citation from the Sammy's Awards, that must be something you probably couldn't have envisioned 20, 30, 40 years ago. No, the, the technology we have today, uh, I could not have envisioned it. Uh, 20 or 30 years ago. I came to the VRC. I came to work in federal government in, in 2000, a little over 20 years ago. And at that time, we had uh, dreams and ideas, but the technologies to do this kind of work really have been developed over this last 20 years. And, and so the kind of things we did this time really are a consequence of technologies that have been developed over the last 10 years. But it has been driven largely by work that's been, we've tried to do on HIV vaccines for the last 40 years. So it's, it's really that original investment in HIV research and HIV biology and vaccine biology that has led to the new tools we have now to address some of these other problems. Now that you are retired, should, say, COVID-20 come around or COVID-21, will you be available on speed dial to, to head back up to D.C. and help them solve that one? Well, I've retired from the federal government after 21 years, but I, I really consider this a repositioning. So I'm, I'm not exactly retired. I think maybe life right now is busier than it was even, even before because there's still a lot of loose ends to clean up. And so I'm, I'm going to consult back to the VRC and to other parts of government, and I'm going to be available and, and still be in the fight, just uh, from a different position. Dr. Barney Graham was Deputy Director of the Vaccine Research Center at the National Institutes of Health. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and I really should just say one thing about Dr. Corbett, who uh, came to my lab as a postdoctoral fellow in 2014 and selected coronaviruses as, as, as her choice to work on with me. And we had started this project, but it was right in the beginning after the MERS outbreak in 2013. So she has been in this with other collaborators at other universities uh, for a long time prior to this, getting us ready to make this response. And so she's not here with us right now, but I can tell you in the beginning of 2020, she was very important for getting this work quickly started. And that's Dr. Kizmikia Corbett, and she and Dr. Graham are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. And during his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. 
You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers as others call them every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and 
without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters uh, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.